Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose Robinson of Robinson's Podcast. This is the introduction to episode 27, and it's going to be a quick one. I was doing two episodes a week, but it's become very difficult for me to do so. Not because I don't want to, but because most of the people that I want to talk to are professors and they're busy during the quarter or semester. So I have to wait, it seems, to get a lot of people until after the semester is over, which means that I have way less ammo in the tank for new episodes unfortunately. But thankfully, I do have other people around, like my father, so that's who this episode is with, and he's quite knowledgeable. I mean, he could be an art history professor. So this episode, we talk about the Elgin Marbles, which I'm not going to say anything about now because my dad goes into a lot of detail about them. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode and stay tuned for more. I have generally, why are you smiling at me? me? <laughs> You're laughing. No, no. Yeah, I have generally resisted my participation in these podcasts um, in part because I'm sort of haunted by a scene in Woody Allen's Annie Hall. I don't know if you know the scene where Woody Allen, he plays a character named Alvy Singer. The character he's playing is standing in a movie theater line. And uh, he hears this man also in line talking to his date about Marshall McLuhan, uh, who, by the way, was a philosopher who wrote a lot about media theory um, and coined the phrase, the medium is the, the message, uh, Canadian, I think. So Alvy, at least in his mind, he's fantasizing, but we see it on screen as if it's real. He says to this guy in line, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan. And the guy in line says, well, Really well, I, I teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I, I think my insights into McLuhan have a great deal of validity. And then Albie says something like, oh, yeah, well, I happen to have McLuhan right here. And he, and then McLuhan pops out from, from behind a curtain. I'm sorry, you know, the camera's up here, but I see your picture down there, so I keep looking up and down. So, so McLuhan pops out from behind a curtain or, or a movie poster on a stand and McLuhan says to the guy, I heard what you were saying. You know nothing of my work. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. So, so um, I have had trouble getting you to tell me in advance what we're going to talk about. Last time you wouldn't tell me at all. And this time I said, what can we talk about? You got to tell me something. And you said the Elgin marbles. And, and I, I, I guess I'm concerned that my dilettantism doesn't entitle me to say anything about the Elgin marbles at all, although I know to say Elgin. I think it's pronounced Elgin and not Elgin. And, and it's certainly not a topic that I know a lot about. Uh, and I can readily imagine the Alvy Singers and McLuhan's of the world saying, it's amazing that I'm being allowed to say anything about the Elgin marbles at all. So that's my my big caveat, even if I'm not a, a total dilettante, uh, I'm more of a longtime dabbler, a hobbyist, or at least a non-expert 
and in any event, not an expert in the Elgin marbles. I'm not letting you get a word in edgewise. And my, my art interest, as you know quite well, is much more confined to modern and contemporary art, art theory, art criticism, and, and to a lesser extent, museum history, theory, and criticism. So, so that's my big caveat. It's a pretty broad one that pretty much extends to everything I might say. But that's, but I'm happy to talk about the Elgin Marbles a little bit. I'll tell you a little bit I know. Sure. Well, now you've opened up this conversation, this meta conversation about the podcast. And I mean, there's a reason that I don't particularly want to tell you what I have in mind before we start talking. And that's because I don't want this to be like an artificially contrived conversation or interview. And some people that I talk to, professors who I don't know and don't have any rapport with already, uh, really need something like that in order to get started. But for other guests, uh -huh. like if I have you, I mean, I've been talking to you for quite some years that I know that we can just, something will just come up and... I've known you most of your life. Yeah, and it'll be <laughs> sufficiently interesting. So I don't want... I. I don't think that when I have uh, Robinson's dad on the podcast, I mean, they're expecting, not because you aren't knowledgeable, but they're not expecting an Oxford professor who's been spending his entire life researching the Elgin marbles. Well, thank God. So, so here, I mean, I was thinking, I don't remember when you told me Elgin marbles, but, but of course I've been working all week and I've been busy all week. So I haven't really thought about the Elgin marbles. Well, what much. I recall about them, let and, me just uh, go first, because I mean, I sure. only sure. know about the Elgin marbles because when I was in high school, you had some Christopher Hitchens books and you gave me right. God is not great, which I right. really enjoyed reading. And that, uh -huh. I mean, that book's a great book, even though right. I, I think I think a lot of people go through a militantly anti-religious phase, and I was certainly mm -hmm. in that phase when I picked up that book, but it uh, still stands well for me. But anyway, then I asked for some of his other work, and you turned me to this Elgin Marble book. And what I recall, basically, is that it serves as an exemplar for cases of art I'll call it theft, uh, even though that might not be the, the right word for it, and concerns of returning that art. So if I recall correctly, Elgin uh, took pieces of the Parthenon or one of those yeah. buildings, some of the right. the pillars maybe, or statues, and then brought them back yeah. to Europe. Yeah, I, I can tell you more about that, yeah, but right. Okay. So, yeah, I know that there are no, lots of philosophical I, that, issues involved, so I knew that there would be plenty to right. talk about. Right, so um, you're right. I, I had a number. I like Christopher Hitchens a lot. I, I, I at least thought that he he makes me think. I like writers who make me think, and I, I try to learn a new thing a day, and I used to like picking up his books because you could sort of open up any one of his books to any page and, and just have a... a, a a very provocative or thought-provoking comment, maybe the one a day. I mean, I just see something there. My problem, it's funny you mention it because I thought I have a, a Hitchens book on this, I think, and I can't find that book. And I'm I'm so, um, I was going to say crazy, rigorous about the way I organize my books, right. my, my ethnography versus anthropology versus African art versus blah, 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 versus all the contemporary stuff. So 
I don't know where I would put the Elgin marbles. And I think that it, it somehow, I think I have a couple of books about the Elgin marbles. And I think that book must be with it. And I, I looked through my books a couple of times and I couldn't find it. But but I think a good starting point is not, maybe Hitchens is, is more of a good end point to the extent I can recall stuff about what he said about precisely the issues you mentioned. But I think I think, I think it might be good to sort of start with the backstory because we should go back into the time machine to the Parthenon please. a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, please take me there. So, so it's on the Acropolis, which is in Athens and, and obviously it's ancient and it's Greek and it's well known for its artistic distinction and its architectural um, complexity. Is it one of those buildings that people talk about because it, its proportions correspond to like the golden ratio? Oh, that I don't know, actually. I'll just Google it. But keep I don't going. I'm curious. So, yeah, so, so I, I believe it dates back to about 450 BC. I mean, I'm, again, I'm a non-expert. That's my recollection. So, so I, I think it goes back to around 450 BC. So Athens is basically at the height of its power, political power at that time. And, and it's also the center of, our, of artistic and intellectual awakening, a sort of artistic and intellectual awakening that I, I suppose we still regard as very important to our storyline. And, and maybe that plays into Elgin too. So, so tell me if you know, I'm wrong. I'm not great at this sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm sort of a sieve. I don't remember all these things really well, but I, a sieve, like everything just sort of flows through me. Oh, okay. Um, I don't always retain a lot of stuff. And I, I think I always have trouble saying Socrates now. After seeing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I always hear Socrates. Yeah. But, yeah. but um, I think Socrates would have been a young man in or around Athens around the time it's built, if it's around 450, because, and again, you may know more about this. You should maybe know more about this than I do. But I, I, think, I think he was in part a stonemason. Really? Well, I could be making that up. That's fine. You know, alcoholic confabulation. I, I have a recollection that Socrates... Are you drinking? <laughs> are you currently I am drunk? Actually what drinking. are you drinking? I'm only drinking wine, okay. but and very little of his left. So so I, he may have taken part, maybe even in the Hold construction on. of the He was the, born of the to Sophroniscus and Phenerity, a stone worker and a midwife, respectively, in the Athenian deme of... Allo yeah. Peke. So, so he's born around 470, right? I remember these years. In okay, 470 so to 469, right. yeah. Okay, and then and then Plato's like 430 or so? Okay, I don't know. I don't study ancient philosophy. And so Aristotle's much. like 380. I remember the spacing. So, so it, I mean, it's Socrates, Plato, then Aristotle, right? Just, Just say sure, yes. yes. Your, your philosophy yes. PhD. <laughs> okay, so, so, so anyway, so the Parthenon is this artistic, an architectural masterpiece. It's known for its Doric columns on each side. Did you ever study like types of columns? It's Never we got studied types school. of columns. Uh, do you know the three types of columns? Nope. Do you know the three types of rocks? No. I igneous, metamorphic, sedimentary. No, you know, I, don't, I don't know things. Like you really overestimate okay, so, so the there, breadth of my knowledge. I, there's ionic. There's Doric and there's Corinthian. So, so Doric is the more simple, sturdy, more massive form, sort of uh, sort of heavy simplicity. 
Uh, I think like we have some columns when you come into the house, um, some old ones that were here. Like the wooden ones? The wooden ones. And those are Ionic. Uh, Ionic usually has scrolls on either side. And you might recall that there are like those sort of scrolls. I can't go down. Yeah, I know. Sort of at the top, Uh, little curly things. Yeah, Ionic is more ornate and slender usually. Oh, no, that's wrong. Ionic is is more ornate and slender usually the scrolls on either side. So we have Ionic. We don't have Doric. Yeah, I'm looking at Doric. And Corinthian is even... They're just... Pardon me? I'm looking at Doric right now on, on Wikipedia. They're just sort of seem like standard, pretty bulky columns. With these sort yeah, of like yeah. grooves so we have or ridges Ionic. or corrugations. Right. The grooves and ridges are important. And Corinthian is even more ornate than, than Ionic and in my mind, more leafy in appearance. If you think of those ones that sort of look leafy. Um, so the, the Parthenon is constructed of marble and it's regarded as the culmination or a culmination of, of Greek architect, architecture for reasons I don't truly understand. Uh, don't totally know, but I, I've read more detailed descriptions of the Parthenon back in my days of art history courses and things. I don't really remember. I, I know it's greatly esteemed and I'm, um, I retain little of the detail, but um, I do know that somewhere around, so it starts being built around 450, somewhere around 400 to 450 AD, I think, it, it was converted as many pagan temples were uh, into a Christian church. And I think um, there were some resulting redecorations, so to speak. And, and I think it continued to be a Christian church for another thousand years or so. Uh, and then it became a mosque. And, and that's um, so circa 1450 say if like like my memory is correct uh, under turkish rule you know part of the the uh, ottoman empire and um I, I think this is around the time that that the parthenon so far as i know uh, sort of enters the western imagination or at least it's when i'm aware of the parthenon entering the western imagination through an emissary or ambassador of uh, Louis Louis the Fourteenth, I think, isn't Louis the Fourteenth the the Sun King? Nod. Yes, my, more my stuff than you. Even I'm a modern history. He's absolutely the Sun okay, King. Okay, so so uh, so around that time, I think there was some extreme damage to the Parthenon. I hope no one hears this who knows a lot more than me. And every like is like, no. but I think around that time there was a lot of damage to the Parthenon when a, a Venetian army attempted to drive the Turks from Greece. So the, the Turks are inhabiting Greece. Venetian army tries to repel them. And I think there's some major league damage to the Parthenon. In any event, that, that may sort of coincide with the West's increasing enthusiasm for classic Greek art. And, and all of that, I think, time frame wise, now we're going to Allied a bit and just move forward. I think brings us up to Lord Elgin, who either around the very late 1700s, very early 1800s, like maybe around 1800, um, he becomes the ambassador 
to the Turkish government, which again was a major powerhouse um, in that area, controlled a good deal of Southeast Europe, Western Asia, Asia and Northern Africa between the, the 14th and I guess early 20th centuries. And, and I, I think there's a significant dispute about Elgin's motives or intentions. But the bottom line is that Lord Nelson, <laughs> I wish mom was here. She's better with this. Lord Nelson's defeat of the French fleet uh, just prior to Elgin's appointment as the ambassador caused the Turkish Sultan to look to Britain to protect the Ottoman Empire against the French. And, and as a consequence, I think Elgin was authorized to make casts or drawings sort of in situ in place at the Parthenon to do a little excavating here and there, maybe, and maybe to remove some pieces of stone. This is all sort of the backstory. I'll like a couple more minutes about this, I think. And, and so that that's sort of what he's given. I, I think he basically got an authorization. I think the technical word is a firman. Do you know that word? No. F-I-R-M-A-N. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's what um, an authori authorization from the Sultan is called. And so I think he got it this authorization. a royal mandate or decree issued by a sovereign in an okay. Islamic state. Okay. So I, I think the, the Turkish Sultan says you can remove and send to, to England something, uh, uh, some sculpture decoration, some part of the Parthenon's frieze, that, that part that's between the columns, the top of the columns. Uh -huh. um, I, I hate to call them slabs, but he basically sends to England something like 50 slabs, 50 marble slabs of the Parthenon's frieze. So, you know, maybe most of it's sculptured decoration. So is that on the front and, or and, the and interior of the building? That's on the outside. Okay. So I, 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 I should have like a visual aid. So there are like columns and uh, I think those slabs are properly called, I don't know how you, where the accent is, metopes. Metopes, I don't know, but they're like this. There's like a column, column, and this there's like a piece up here between the columns, a piece up here, and those are the marble slabs. Uh, again, not totally sure how you pronounce them, but that's he had like 50 of them, these rectangular architectural element in, in Doric friezes sent to England. Um, and I hope no one's who might ever hear this is cringing at my description. Any, anyway, though I don't know the specifics, Elgin then has those slabs sent to England where he apparently showed them or showed them off, uh, uh, then thought about creating a, a private museum. Then I think he scuttled that idea when the British Museum came in knocking. And uh, then there was some haggling and I think some inquiry into ownership and ultimately resulting in the sale of the slabs to the British government and the, the government in turn uh, uh, offering them up to the British Museum. And I, I think that's the relevant backstory of the Elgin marbles. Um, 
which which incidentally, and I, I think it's like worth talking about at some point, but but interesting, like one of the interesting things about it is that um, I think by statute or decree uh, or something like that, they have to be referred to as the Elgin marbles. Uh, and so I think that's the backstory, but I, I think like the Hitchens part of this. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, part, what I'm yeah. curious about immediately, because it's been a long time since I read about it is why this case is of any particular value, because obviously British museums, American museums, colonial museums have art that has been taken from all across the world. So what makes this case particularly interesting? Well, I mean, this is, I think this is a lot of like what the, the Hitchin stuff, you know, what, what he talked about. Um, and I, I don't remember, I mean, again, I, I probably read it myself 15 years ago or, or you know, something like that. But, but I, I think there's, we could go through a, uh, well, I think there's there's interesting things about human needs and desires sort of embedded in the story, and there's interesting things about, I think, more about what you're talking about. So I, I think um, running through some of those issues, more the Hitchens sort of issues, it's like, is possession really nine-tenths of the law? What does that mean? Um, well, you know, just, just by having it, do you, you sort of have a right to have it. I mean, do you, is it, you know, I, I mean, it sort of dovetails with ideas of restitution or repatriation, you know, is that necessary or even appropriate or, or to the victor, do, do the, the spoils basically go to the victor, to the victor go the spoils. Is that what the um, nine tenths of the law phrase is referring to just um, war and conquering or like, I mean, when does that phrase come up otherwise? Um, I don't know what its origin is. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. So I, I think there are just a lot of issues there about um, when it comes to the, the Elgin marbles. Like, what if the people who created the works are no longer in any real or direct sense surviving. I know that's some of that's come up with repatriation of cultural patrimony and sacred objects of Native Americans, where yeah. some have claimed rights or to with like land grants items held or in the land. No, uh, more like uh, uh, claiming rights. I, I can't remember what the, I'm going to say the wrong name, like the peat bog man or something like there was some, some group that said they had the right to an ancestor and there was a dispute and I, I you know here i think there would be much less of an argument because the greek people are unmistakably greek there's a through line from antiquity to the present of greek people therefore probably this isn't precedential in the floodgate sense if you said like repatriate the elgin marbles to the greeks you're not you're not there aren't a whole lot of issues about whether the greek people are greek people um um, trying to remember more Hitchens sort of issues. You know, what if, you know, one argument might be, you know, and, and he's fully for, as I recall, very strongly for repatriation. You know, what if uh, removal um, from the Parthenon was a boon to the study of ancient Greeks, to antiquity, more generally, um, to art of that time? What if it, you know, having it in England or in a major museum created great interest in 
Greek sculpture in a way that it wouldn't. Am I fabricating yeah, it, this? It but wasn't it. one complication Elgin's concern that because of war it, it, in Athens, the whole structure would be destroyed? Weren't people hadn't people yeah, already that, been looting it of... for a very long time? Like I actually recall that there were like golden clad sculptures or something on top of it, maybe as well that had already been stolen. Uh, but I, I don't remember uh, that. I mean, that goes to underlying motives. I mean, uh, there are obviously a lot of issues about conservation, preservation, survival. You know, were they at risk when collected? Would they be at risk now? Maybe, maybe even if they're returned, maybe even more so if they're returned because they're even more famous now and are more famous symbols of something and therefore possibly more likely targets. You know, they're less anonymous. Um, but but you're right. I, I know that in the in Hitchens' book, and of course, this also moves forward in time about the arguments that have been made over time. There are arguments about uh, wars, earthquakes. Uh, I remember there were arguments about atmospheric pollution in Greece, which was quite bad. Uh, inattention, uh, poor upkeep, um, shoddy repairs, financially strained, if not impoverished caretakers. I mean, all of those are arguments that are made. I believe you're precisely right that Elgin specifically made arguments to the British House of Commons that the Turkish were defacing the Parthenon, that that travelers were taking pieces. Um, and if I recall correctly, that I don't remember the gold part, but maybe that that statues were even being crushed to make mortar. Yeah, that sounds correct. Okay, and and I think that that's what he said substantiated or altered his original plan, substantiated his amendment of his original plan to make to make models, do some modest drawings, and, and move on. So so this was not only for the good of Western culture, this was also for the good of the Greeks, theoretically, right? Mm -hmm. Or Greek culture, the preservation of Greek culture. Uh, you know, the idea that Greeks couldn't care for their own cultural patrimony or antiquity. And you can see how that translates to so many things, right? To people who aren't white mm -hmm. and don't have all that white privilege and power. Um, and so there's just a lot of issues there about native or indigenous people's claims versus governments or even squatters claims and, and taking advantage of unstable, uncertain, impoverished political regimes, um, uh, some, maybe some sleight of hand, some barbarism, some, some adhesion or other power disparities. Um, I, I, um, I think I, this is a detour, but I think I told you that I, had the good fortune once 20 years ago or so to, to work on a NAGPRA case with one of our partners, Tom Campbell. And um, I can't remember the specifics, but there were masks that the Field Museum had obtained around the, the turn of the century, around, the, around 1900, that century, and had obtained for... Uh, fair market value at the time. Um, 
you know, when we researched it, it looked like they had received them properly, but there was an issue still, an issue that was raised by the Indian tribe that I thought was a really interesting argument, which was that uh, these masks, I guess, when they're no longer used, they, you know, I'm going to say this my way, and again, I apologies to anyone if this is offensive, but they'd, they'd sort of put them out in a field. They'd, they'd leave them out uh, outside. And, and the argument they made was, it was about alienation of property, and it was basically that, um, you know, who can give good title to the property, you know, or here, did the Turkish sultan have the right to, to alienate that property? In the Nagpur case, they made the argument that, um, that the mass belonged to God, not to the people. They never belonged to the people. And that's why they had to be, they were left out for, for God or God's. I don't recall, but I, I thought that was a really tough argument to to address legally, because what if someone says that the only uh, thing or entity that has the right to alienate the property or give good title to the property is God, because God owes them. So it was very hard in my mind at the time to fashion a, an argument or a discussion even about the arguments. So um, I think th those are sort of Hitchens. Um, arguments, I think there have also been arguments about you know, is it better to have those slabs, apologies again for calling them slabs, but, you know, is it is it better to have them in a major Western museum and accessible not only to experts, but to the hoi polloi, to us, uh, so scholars and us, rather than return them to their place of origin where, where they're not as accessible? And then I think the mother of all arguments always, and again, more of the floodgate argument and the floodgate arguments or, or arguments lawyers make all the time is, you know, this would empty all the museums of, of their great and much beloved collections, all the masterpieces of the, uh, in Western museums, the slippery slope. And I think, yeah, well, I, I think the argument, one of the counter arguments here is the uniqueness of the Parthenon marbles. Um, it's an argument about them specifically and about the marbles that are part of the slabs that are part of this masterpiece. It's not like saying, just to give another example, that all mummies in all Western museums or all museums that aren't in Egypt need to be repatriated to Egypt, right? It's not like all of a class of things, you know? And so there are arguments about who do world masterpieces and world treasures belong to, again, the victors and the spoils, or do they belong to the world? Should they remain in situ? Is it better to put them in collections and in a museum where they're housed, they're protected from the elements versus I think Hitchens talks about all the efforts they've had to, and I don't even know where that stands, but to create a museum in Athens where they protect them more and display them better and things like that. And I'll shut up for a minute. Your turn. I've been talking a lot. Sure. Well, I, there are uh, lots of questions that come to mind. One thing that immediately comes to mind is whether they're the question of to, to whom do the Elgin marbles belong? Does that correspond to a fact in the way that if I ask where Robinson's dad is there's there there's a fact about where you are uh, are there facts about ownership um, 
or is it inherently kind of vague or just unanswerable? But I, I wonder whether you have a clear to you, at least moral intuition about what should be done with the Elgin marbles. Um, I, in that instance, lean toward the repatriation sort of concept. I mean, I, I really, in all honesty, I had not thought about the Elgin marbles until you mentioned them in quite some time. I had not thought about them. I really do read about contemporary and modern art almost every day, but I, and, and I've been doing, uh, during the pandemic, I've, I've been doing a deep dive into Renaissance art um, even today, but I, but it's not, ancient art is certainly not my thing. Um, I, I guess I, I, I don't really, I, I have a pretty strong opinion, I guess, about repatriation of the Parthenon marbles. And I guess this might dovetail with the last time we talked. I guess I tend to think about, even when, when you said, let's talk about the Elgin marbles. And even though I have a big mouth, so I talk for a half hour, however long I talk for about it. The things that, I mean, putting it back into like, my story, the things that I'm more interested in and the things that I think about it, about, about it more, the things that came to mind were more about like collecting, like we talked about collecting last time. I mean, all those sort of things like, uh, let me just rattle off some ideas. Um, so like, like, um, uh, finding and restoring or awakening, or reanimating or analyzing things like these human needs and desires we have. A lot of what I think about with respect to African art, a lot of times, um, reimagining and reinventing from textual traces and, and material remains and, and weaving together a grand narrative. You know, I like, I don't know if it's a real word, but I like the word narratizing. Um, I like this sort of storytelling. I like this idea of some sort of unearthing process or practice that's that's never completed or never wholly achieved. Um, I, I think about like an effort to link uh, and to some degree have control or dominion over a great triumphant learned past. I think that's embedded in this, this Elgin story and something I think about sometimes in connection with some of this art. I think there's an effort to attain uh, some of that past by possessing some part of it, sometimes uh, metonymically, metonymically. Um, I see that a lot in, in classical. I think we talked about this when I walked around and pointed out buildings to you before, not corbeling, but but maybe some some classical buildings and monuments, like some in DC in particular, where you you feel like we're claiming and absorbing some part of history and that we're saying we're the product or some of the history or um, uh, we possess a, a um, an authentic culture and history and it, it it's an also similarly maybe I'm, I'm sort of saying the same thing but an effort to be in touch with and absorb the essential qualities and elements of the accumulated knowledge of the past something like that uh, to claim it 
um, to, and this goes to the, a line from this thing, you know, I have up in the house where, you know, it's to assert implicitly or explicitly that we are the indisputable apex of it all. I think having the Parthenon and putting it in our museum and sort of owning it in some way symbolically is that it obviously also is to some degree embedded in it is to some degree that idea of us as conquerors as an imperial power as the elite the elect uh sort of a cultural fascism you know uh explorers globetrotters adventurous uh, uh all these expeditionary undertakings and and endeavors especially to my mind in the last third of the 19th century which is sort of when i get interested in, in a lot of that stuff just historically not in the stuff so much but in like maybe the the adventuring that that brought that stuff so you get that a lot of interest not that it's a new interest but an interest in pursuit of treasure trophies booty spoils prizes uh you know it's like walking around paris with mom a zillion years ago and and you know her saying like oh another egyptian obelisk obelisk uh the place is lousy with them there's sort of like one on every corner it's uh it's this idea of living heroic lives and living out heroic fantasies interests in the marvelous the strange the exotic the magical the the untamed, the primitive, the wild, the other, the, you know, tourism, collecting souvenirs, it goes on and on. Curios, specimens, oddities, wonder cameras, curiosity cabinets, uh, Renaissance proto-museums leading up to systematized mapping and, and decoding and, and real museums. Okay, so so that sort of stuff. I think that's all embedded in the Oh, connoisseurship, I think, is embedded in this too. You know, I, and I like connoisseurship stuff. Um uh, being able to identify the more valuable, if not the most valuable stuff, you know, sort of flaunting authority and supremacy and, and saying this is a masterpiece. And I guess the last thing I'll say on that point, and again, I, I apologize, I, I talk too much, is, um, again, they're called the Elgin Marbles. This is from like 1800. So, so there's obviously the element uh, of them as a monument or testament an ego-driven thing. They're not called the Parthenon marbles. They're called the Elgin marbles. So that I think that stuff is what's more of interest to me than than maybe the repatriation sort of issues and, and the mo the motives, the original motives, uh, the the motives in keeping it now, keeping it in the British Museum. I think I'm more interested in in the stuff I mentioned, more the human needs and desires. Mm -hmm. I would very much like to talk to a psychoanalyst about collecting. And I also wonder, I mean, if you can, cause I, I have never studied psychoanalysis, so I don't know much about it, but if you can psychoanalyze a culture or a regime, because I think of what's that. So I, I happen to have just coincidentally, I happen to have a couple of books about collecting by my side here. This is one of the leading books, Collecting an Unruly Passion by Werner Munsterberger. He sounds like a psychoanalyst. Uh, a psychoanalyst. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's a good well, book. Well, maybe I should, you should give me that name and I'll reach out to, to this guy. Yeah, I, actually, coincidentally, I have, I have some of my- I'll Keep close to the microphone books. though. Oh, sorry. 
uh, to have and to hold an intimate history of collectors and collecting. Uh, oh, there's another, I have two copies of Warner Munsterberger. Uh, on collecting, Susan Pierce, an investigation into collecting in the European tradition. Cool. I actually have a little problem here by my work desk because I was looking at them a couple weeks ago. Uh, but what I was going to say is, like the acquisition of of the Elgin marbles or these other prizes and then posting them up on a wall, it's kind of, I can see it almost as a, a response to their, the culture's feeling impoverished, like of spirit in a way. And there are, they are conquering, they are bringing back these trophies, they are putting them on their walls as a way of justifying or justifying their behavior as a way of making themselves feel great. And it just becomes this reinforcing circle. So I think of, I mean, it's kind of silly, but I have like these pants hanging on my wall as if they're artwork. And uh -huh. And just doing that, I think subconsciously is me trying to treat them as art to justify the money that I spent on them or uh -huh. the attention I put into uh, shopping for them or even glorifying them in a way I hope uh -huh. subconsciously will transfer to me when I put them on, like I'll feel cool when I wear them. And I, none of right. these are things that I'm thinking about ever consciously when I'm buying pants or putting on pants, but I do think that, that they lurk beneath the surface. And I wonder if you could say that same thing about colonial Britain, these things somehow lurking beneath the surface, but I don't know what that would correspond yeah, I mean, to. Uh, my, my, my guess there, and I don't know enough about England in 1800, but I, I would say if it's like a, a life force, I don't know that they needed to be juiced. Um, it may have been more, more life force or more juice, but I, th I think they are, you know, they had the power and the glory. But I think, so I think the, the desire for more power and glory and not being satisfied is indicative of some a metaphorical hole somewhere that needs to be filled. And I don't want to, I mean, people don't like the, the great men uh, or great man theories of, of history these days, but I imagined that the people who controlled Britain at the time uh, had some sort of um, what I'll call today a, a, a psychological deficiency though. Mm. Not that I uh, yeah I, I would, that, I, I would have I've, thought the opposite. What I would have I would have thought like more like too much ego, like they were they were very empowered. I mean, right. Well, I that's I think that there's a difference between what's going on consciously and what's going on subconsciously. Like the bully at school uh -huh. might appear to have a huge ego. Uh, he's the loudest person. He's the one beating other people up, but it's because on the inside, there's something missing or something happened to them and they're just not, um, happy people. 
I mean, I, well, you know, I mean, I mean, when I was, a, well, I, was I, I mean, I bullied people yeah. more psychologically in my like middle school years and, uh, and before that. And it was definitely because I was unhappy and had low self-esteem. Well, I, I think, okay, well, well, a little bit of that might be a little bit of what I mentioned, which was the sort of explorers, adventurous, globetrotters, expedient. In fact, another. Try not to talk uh, when you're like, it. when you're very far from oh, the mic. Sorry, I just want to look for another book that's on the floor in here. Yeah, so, sorry. Another very interesting book that I'd recommend to anybody uh, is Longfellow's Tattoos, subtitled Tourism, Collecting, in Japan. Hmm. Um, so it, it's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's son. So he arrives in Yokohama in like 1870s, tattoos and exploring, lots of photos. Like he of, gets tattoos? He gets a lot of tattoos. It was a very popular thing at the time, <laughs> apparently. But it's... um. It sort of dovetails with some of those things that I mentioned and maybe some of the things you mentioned about these sort of human needs and desires. Like, why did they do that? Why was that of interest? Why were they doing this adventuring? Why were they getting the tattoos? Why were they looking for this magical, untamed, strange, exotic stuff, you know, stuff, you know, how does that relate back to the having a, a unicorn's horn in your wonder camera, you know, mm -hmm. all these sort of things that, that people want to do and why, if they have the power, if they're empowered enough to do it. Yes. Well, I think that because I'm constantly dissecting my own behavior and trying to figure out where it comes from, I am doing the same thing with other people or in this case, I never do that. I know you don't. Or in, or in this case, uh, I try to be as I, I try not to be introspective. Mm -hmm. I try I, every time I, I feel like I'm being very introspective, I shut it down. Yeah, well, it's gotten you this far. I feel like it, does, it usually does me more harm than good myself. But I understand what, what uh, you mean. And for some people, a lot of people, it's a very good thing. For me, it tends to like make me. Well, feel I was good. just saying that the the reason that those are the considerations that come to mind for me is just because I'm constantly thinking about them in relation to myself. What do you think? Do you think the Elgin marbles should be repatriated? I mean, just you know, broadly, without knowing all the details. Like, I don't know all the details. Do I think that? Uh, so I am. I don't think that there's a, a, a fact in the matter, sort of like, I don't think it's a fact that something is good or something is bad. Uh, I'm right. what you would call not a, a moral realist in that sense, even though I'm not super uh -huh. educated about meta ethics. But if you're asking me whether my just gut human opinion yeah viscerally what do you is feel that those should go back my feeling is really i don't care uh-huh um, so i guess i'm it, apathetic. well explain i don't care i don't care why because i'm sufficiently distant from greece the art world 
I only have so much bandwidth for caring about things. I care about the dog who would like to be outside right now. To me, that's uh-huh. in a, in a way. I mean, it's sort of well, like why don't people think- donate? Hmm. I mean, sure. I I think that yes, it is bad to steal. It was stolen and. Well, that's not even totally clear, but but right, right. It, it's it may not have been stolen, but it's it's being held at this point, or it's not sure. being repatriated. Yeah, so it's just not something I care too much about. But yeah, I'm not, like if mm-hmm. you lay out a few uh, propositions, the Elgin marbles were taken. The Elgin marbles can be returned. They are from Greece. Greek people would like to have them then sure, uh, I would say, yes, they should what, be. What about, do you, maybe you sort of answered this. Do you think it's important? Not to me. Yeah. Do you think it's important in a world sense, in a broad, beyond you? To a lot of people, yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, um, hold on. So, you know, this is your uh, sorry, wonder camera just showing off. Yeah, I have a desk surrounded by piles of books. So I, I pulled this book out again this week, um, actually, because I was thinking about the Elgin marbles. And I thought maybe I'd see something in here that would help me tie this up to some of the discussion about white fragility and, and more directly white privilege. And I actually didn't get around to looking at it, but I think on, on a lot of levels, uh, whether it's about repatriation directly or restitution, um, if one's even subsumed by the other, I think that there are a lot of restitutionary issues there about, you know, colonial behavior and, and Britain in particular. So um, they're big issues. I don't know what the answer is. I think a nice way maybe of really, do you know what the word to operationalize means something means? No, I think you said that to me recently and a couple of weeks no, ago. No, I, I don't think so. I might've. Oh, you said normalize. You were talking about something. Normalized. I was talking about normativity. Normativity. Yeah, but okay, I'll just Google operational, operationalize to, uh, let's see, yeah, express or define something in terms of the operation used to determine or prove it. So I was going to suggest, and maybe this isn't the, per, the ideal use of the term, operationalizing the question whether uh-huh. or not I care about the Elgin marbles to whether okay. or not I'm doing anything about it. Um, okay. So the answer is just no, I don't care because I'm not doing anything about it. I care about my dog because I'm going to take him out. I mean, that's how we can tell that I care about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, and right. So if it I ask caustic you, when you, if I ask you, I mean, I'm trying to, I mean, I'm trying to be caustic because I think that, well, maybe I'm not trying to be caustic, but I'm trying to illuminate something. Mm-hmm. Surely, no, I if think I you're ask not really, you, I think you're explaining you, it's not that if, caustic. If you care about uh, people starving and you know that, let's just say in Africa, people are starving to death every day and you have disposable income. If you really cared about that, 
like really cared, we would know that because you would be donating all of your money towards it. But there's okay, or something, or yeah. you'll, or you'd be doing something. And right, I've just been thinking about that a lot lately because, uh, as I often do from time to time, I think about being vegetarian, and as mm-hmm. I think you do sometimes as well. And I am yeah. totally convinced, or at least giving up chicken. I, 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 I feel horrible every time I eat chicken. Right. I'm, I'm particularly convinced that uh, killing animals to eat them, even uh-huh. if it is natural, even if it's something we've evolved doing, and other animals do it, uh, I think it's right. morally wrong and reprehensible. But I'm still eating turkey every day. And uh-huh. it, that's another question that I have had about the Elgin marbles is even if it is wrong and if everybody has, and if plenty of people have the, the moral intuition that it is wrong, like Christopher Hitchens evidently did uh, for them to be held. Why is it not? Why is that moral intuition not reflected in the law like why are they why are the elgin marbles legally able to be held uh still in europe oh well obviously in europe but in britain as opposed to there being some sort of law where if you take art from some other place it has to be returned um but i don't i don't think that that string of thoughts was necessarily coherent but you can no i got it but i mean i i, I think that there's a whole lot of of research. There has been a whole lot of research on, you know, what the Furman was or what the authorization was, what the motives were, um, different arguments about that. And then even if there's clarity there, it's, you know, it was the Turkish people who held power in Greece you know, may have authorized Elgin the Elgin marble case time. may be more complex, but there yeah, are yeah. plenty of less complex cases. Well, I, you know, I, I'm no expert on NAGPRA. I don't even remember the acronym, but it's basically repatriation of Native American cultural patrimony and sacred objects. This thing that I worked on a little bit. 20, 20 plus years ago. And I think like in the federal register or something, they, the museums were required to, to post lists of the items that they had um, that identified the objects and where, when, how they got them. And they allowed legally so this is a legal directive they allowed uh tribes descendants whoever wanted to make a claim to make a a claim for repatriation you know a lot of some of it was just bones you know i mean they were skeletons and things um so i mean there are some laws that address things like that i'm not I'm not very knowledgeable about that. Um, around that same time, I thought I was going to get into that area. There's a, a law professor at DePaul. I don't know if she still teaches there, but she's quite expert in the area. 
and wrote a textbook about it. And um, I thought we were going to do some work together or maybe write something together and it never panned out. But there, there is a good amount of law, at least in the U.S., about some of that stuff. Hey, you never asked me about this. I thought you would ask me about the this picture behind me. I can't see it. I put it there so you'd ask me. I can't see it. What picture? Oh, you can't? No. Can you see it at all? I can see the edge of a Coca-Cola frame. Oh, okay. So I, I never have any art behind me and certainly not a topless, looking like a topless woman when I have Zoom calls from work. So the picture usually is over here, but it's my parents in 1972 took me to an auction at the Jewish Community Center where they had this Mel Ramis print of a naked woman, I think it's his wife actually, but straddling a Coca-Cola bottle, which my parents allowed me to buy at the auction for a, a nominal amount of money. And I had, uh, it's one of the pictures I had hanging in my room when I was a kid. And I took it from my parents a couple years ago or a year ago when I was there. So it's, um, it's a, a funny little monument to, to 12 year old me. Yeah. And, and, and to some, some sort of kitschy pop art, Mel Ramis, uh, I think he's about my father's age, uh, dead, but was born in 1935 or so, I think. And was one of the pop artists, but not one of the more popular, more well-known pop artists, but pretty well-known. And again, like pretty kitschy, pretty graphic stuff. Yeah, I remembered, I, well, I remember being like a 13 or 14-year-old and going with you to Powell's bookstore. And there was a, a Mel Ramis book, and it was my way of looking at softcore pornography. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's like very cutesy graphic stuff. It's like women straddling Coke bottles and baby Ruth bars and things like that. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, have the moral intuition that that is wrong to have that art uh, or to produce that art these days. And I can understand that in some ways. To me, again, it's a memento. Uh, it, it's just a reflection of... Um, the other thing I have in this room is another poster I had in my in my room in 1972, a poster from 71 or 72 um, called Jewish Superman that I had over my bed. Um, While I have this thought, though, before you continue, uh, I'm thinking sure. to about the the quote that you've already mentioned above your bed. Uh, uh huh. That. I don't know what it says, but we make the mistake that thinking that we are like the pinnacle of taste at all time. We always think that we know everything and, but people have always thought that and will always think that right. even as their opinions evolve and it just can't be the case that these are all true. And what right, I think that we've about now figured it out is yeah. people 200 years ago, when they took the Elgin marbles, they thought they were right. And now we think we're right. And 200 years from now, people might think something completely different and think that they're right. And to me, that right. all points sort of to the idea. I mean, it's not it's not proof by any means, but uh, that it points to the idea that 
there are no moral facts uh, with regard to uh, like your painting being wrong to have or wrong to produce or whether it's wrong to take the Elgin marbles or whether it's wrong to keep them. And it's just um, sort of a, an intuition that we have and those intuitions might change depending on the person having them or the culture or the time or any of those things. But it's not like one intuition is right. It's more that one is one might be more universally accepted than another. So that's why that's yeah, why it's, I, it's I, hard I, for me to say that it is it is wrong to to keep or to not right. repatriate the Elgin marbles. Well, you know, maybe there was a lot of thought or debate about such matters, maybe even in the House of Commons or somewhere else, maybe before uh, they wound up in the British Museum. I don't know if it was so much, as you said, like you, I don't know if you said the bandwidth or whatever, maybe they weren't really thinking necessarily, are we right or wrong? Right might be the right word. Maybe it was more of implicitly, do we have the right? Like we have the right. I mean, that might be where it ties in more with white privilege or, or privilege, maybe not white privilege per se, but it was just privilege. I mean, I, I think that colonial power, cultural fascism, um, you know, to the victors go the spoils sort of thing. It's just, I think it may have just been like their thought, like we dominate, we're the power, we know what's, what's right, we have the right, you know, we act, as we see fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a last question that we just, we, I don't think we really discussed it, but I sort of maybe hinted at the question. Uh -huh. As a lawyer to your mind is a law meant, or do we decide upon our laws or are our laws meant to reflect or reinforce moral intuition? Because I I'm, I imagine that on some level that's way too reductive. Because when you get into the the nuances of like how insurance works, or uh, I mean, there are all sorts of really tiny laws that nobody ever really thinks about, and it's probably hard to attach some moral intuition to which they might respond. But in general, is that how you feel the law has been conceived of? Um. So I'm a litigator. I've always been a litigator. So the law that I focus on and think I'm really a contract litigator, uh, commercial litigator, but contracts, I don't really think about it that way. I, I guess in a matrixy sort of sense, uh, I think it's certainly true that a lot of things undergird a lot of things. Um, and so moral codes, moral responsibilities undergird and are embedded in a lot of law, um, fairness, equity. I mean, I, I guess we could broadly say that's moral, right? So, you know. Yeah, I mean, going back to Hammurabi or something, you know, I think that's all 
justice, fairness is moral. I think, mm -hmm. I think that's an answer, but not, not a very articulate one, but I think it's an answer. Sure. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more question. It's completely okay. unrelated. So, okay. This might be a little unfair. So justify, so okay. knowledge is typically thought of or until a certain thing called the Gettier case came around, it's been thought of by philosophers as justified, true belief. That's how you analyze knowledge. And no, knowledge is justified, true belief. Yeah. So you, you know mm -hmm. that two plus two equals four. One, if you okay, believe it, because if you, if you don't okay. believe, if you believe that two plus two equals five, it's hard for you to uh, really say that you okay. know that two plus two equals four. So you've got to believe it. It's okay. got to be true. So for instance, you can't believe and have a reason, a good reason for believing two plus two equals five, like your professor told you to, uh, told you that's the case. If two plus two doesn't actually equal five, you can't know it. Okay. And you can't know that two plus two equals five without having any justification for that belief. So you say you don't even know what numbers are and it does have, I'm, I should have been saying two plus two equals four. Say you don't even know what numbers are and somebody tells you that two plus two equals four and you believe it and it is true. You don't know it if you don't even understand what numbers are. So the, that, that's just okay. a very rough reason or explanation of why people have come upon justified true belief as knowledge. Okay. And since we talk about the matrix a lot, this, this is topical, uh -huh. but, and so some people have challenged that knowledge is possible, that you can't know anything at all because there is always the possibility that, well, for, yeah. for the moment, we can just limit it to things about the external world. You can't know anything about the external world because you could just be as philosophers describe it, uh, a brain in a vat. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. I know where you're going with this. Well, right. right. So I was just going to wonder if you feel confident or d that you know that the sky is whatever color it is right now in Chicago. If you look out the window, do you feel that you can say that you know it? Are, are you confident that I'm your son or that that we're talking right now? Well, am I confident you're my son? That's a different, <laughs> totally different question. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the Marshall McLuhan thing. Here's here's your mom. <laughs> Bring her in. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm probably not the best person to, to answer. Well, I, um, I wasn't asking. An I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I glanced at an article the other day. I really should have read it where someone was explaining how we could be holograms. Yeah, well, not um, holograms, but simulation theory. Well, that's what he, he said in that article, but... You yeah. don't think it was simulation? No, no, it wasn't the simulation thing. It was, uh, uh, I think it was more of a metaverse sort of thing. But I, I, I but it, I just made, I was sat there for a couple minutes and really read it. And I was just thinking like, sort of what you're saying. How do I know? How do I know I'm real? How do I know this is real? That sort of stuff. Um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's slightly a different question. So presumably, uh -huh. you know, you're real, or you know, you are because I think therefore I am that that seems really to me, I might not know what I am. But the very by very virtue of the fact that I'm having thoughts, I'm pretty convinced that I am. Uh, but yeah, although you could be someone else's thought or something, you, you could just be the product of someone else's thought. And not sure. Really I don't know what that would yeah, what that would else. look like, but mm -hmm. or I mean, what I would be would well, that's certainly more like change, being a hologram, but... isn't it? Then, or or being a product of some something else? I don't know. Uh, so, so I guess my answer is yes. You are you are like a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I, I've never doubted at all that this is real. If that's the question. I don't know if that's the question. I don't really know what the question is because okay. I never doubt that it's real. Uh-huh. Uh, but I wonder whether. So here's what I, when I think, when I hear about these sorts of cases, and there are all sorts of variations to just simply being a brain in a vet. Uh, another uh -huh. sort of interesting variation is. Let's say that. you're you're walking around but you you all of your sort of sense perceptual organs are somehow causally inert and i'm not using any sort of sophisticated language here and they are okay. attached little do you know it to microscopic machines that causally unrelated to like the world around you are somehow giving you the exact responses that you would be uh, be experiencing in the world were your um, were your nerves functioning properly? Okay, so they're simulating your reality yes, for you, but you're not causally so, connected to the world. So even though you're still, I mean, your senses aren't at least uh, like your sight or so what have a you. A computer could provide the world, or or that some other sensors core, whatever. It's not, you have the perception of being in the world, but you're not sure. Really but I wonder if, feeling. so the sky is actually blue in this case. You look uh -huh. up at the sky and the sky is actually blue. You are justified oh, in believing this. You're, yeah. you're justified in believing it because the sky is blue. Uh -huh. Or right. I mean, sorry, you're justified in believing this because you have the senses. You, you Any reasonable person would think the sky is blue when they see a blue sky. Um, it is true because the sky is blue and you do believe it, but you're not actually causally connected to the actual sky. So the question is, okay. do you actually know that the sky is blue? Even, even though you have a justified true belief in this case. So anyway, what all this points to me says to me though, is that, and this is really easy for me to say without providing a rigorous argument, uh, that just the justified true belief analysis of knowledge isn't correct because I do want to say, and we do say that I know that the sky is blue, even if certainly there are alternatives that we can't rule out. Right. This is reminding me of that Jake, I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. movie where he's Donnie Darko. No, no, no. The one where he's no. like, is on the train, like trying to find the bomb. Oh, that he one. Actually yeah, yeah. Is like he's dead. actually dead. 
He's he's yeah. like he was just killed in like a military explosion. He's or a brain in a box, yeah. sort of. They've have him and like somehow they can up. send him ex- back in time or through and a they, simulation. He it, yeah. as if it's real. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to talk about ice cream for a moment. Sure, you can edit this. No, out we can talk about ice cream. But before we talk about ice cream, yeah. last night sure. I went to a party at the law school. Surprisingly, oh, and okay. they had somebody ordered Krispy Kremes to this party, uh-huh. like Halloween Krispy Kremes. And I had four of them. <laughs> that's what that's yeah, what I was okay. doing at the party. And one was just okay. a a glazed donut that was maybe made to look like a spider web or something with uh, crushed mm-hmm. up Oreos on it. And it wasn't it okay, was fine. That good. But they had fill circular donuts that were white. Uh, I don't know what there's the, there's cake and yeast, so it would have been yeast, and they were frosted. And then uh-huh. they were filled with a white cream. And it wasn't like a pudding sort of filling. It was basically like Twinkie filling. Yeah. And yeah, right. oh my God, those were, I had three of those. Those were absolutely amazing. It's sort of like frosting. Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't know what it is it's either. It's fluffier and lighter. But I, I like but donuts. Those were so good. There's something like a jelly donut that's like that. It's it's not, a, my parents call them Bismarck's, but it's, uh, I can't remember. It's not a Boston. I can't, there's a name for it. It has that sort of cream in it. Actually, that dovetails really well with what I want to say about ice cream. Okay, let's go into the ice cream. So I had had low-carb ice cream before that I thought totally fucking sucked. Like a long time ago? It must have been Rebel, yeah. No, well, Rebel well, is new. I mean, you used to get the Briars. No, like three or four years oh, ago. Yeah. I thought say. you meant like 15 years ago when you would get the Briars okay, so three I flavors. The, I, I went to the store the other day. And I got Halo. Halo Top, yeah. Halo Top chocolate chip and cookie dough. Uh-huh. It, it, it was amazing. Really? Yeah, I thought it was so good for sugar-free ice cream. I I thought it had, like again, like a very icing sort of flavor in a good way. Actually, it reminded me a little bit of that sort of donut interior you're talking about. So yesterday, I don't want to sound like a mew, but yesterday I went back and got, God I wanted forbid. to get the banana pudding one or something like that. They didn't have it. So I got uh, salted caramel, a name like salted caramel. Sea salt caramel. Sea salt caramel. Okay. And it's not as good as the, you know, and the chocolate shit, the chips are not really chocolate. The cookie dough is not cookie dough. They're little microscopic little pellets of nothingness, but you know they have a uh, they have a mouth feel. But I was amazed how good it was. Yeah, uh, I am generally in agreement with you that Halo Top is very good bang for the buck as far as calories are concerned. Like I would way rather have a pint of that for. 250 calories than a measly like Twix bar or something. But right. no, there is no question. So I gave that a chocolate chip cookie dough a 75 out of 100, which is to me just okay. It's good. And so it's good, but nothing more nor less than good. But for something to uh-huh. be that good as sugar free ice cream is great. Yet, is there any sugar-free ice cream that you've had that's yes. gotten a higher yes. rating? That's what I was going or, to say. What flip? Uh, did you get that at Jewel? Um, I got 
the first one at Mariano's and I got the sea salt at Jewel. I was, I actually walked up to Jewel. I was hoping to get the banana pudding one there. I thought they'd have a bigger selection. They didn't. Uh, but well, the answer is Fairlife's ice cream is great. So Fairlife, Fairlife. has a caramel uh-huh. toffee crunch, which I gave in 89. Ooh, the sugar free? Well, none of these are sugar free, but it's like diet well, low light sugar ice cream. Yeah. Like, like 300 calories a pint. It's, I think thing. a little more than that, but yeah. It's called Caramel Crunch? Caramel Toffee Crunch. Caramel Toffee Crunch. Their cookies and cream is also good. I haven't good. seen Fairlife. They have it at... I've seen their chocolate milk. Yeah, well, they have they have it at Jewel. Oh, but okay. it's really good. I'll check it out. I didn't see it. Yeah. All right. Where'd you get the, where'd you get the Stanford Mom hat? I got the Stanford Mom hat at the Stanford bookstore. Oh, you bought it yourself? I did. Cute. Oh. Thank you. All right. All right. I am thankful for you joining me. Okay. You, you... I think maybe you shouldn't give me topics <laughs> after here. I'm sorry. And now I thought about it. I thought, I think I talked for the first like 30 Well, it's minutes. okay. I, I mean, I, I think talking about the podcast on the podcast is fine. I think our first episode was better because it was more uh-huh. impromptu and conversational, even though this one obviously right. had much more information. Yeah. Well, what happened was today, Sandy's in Denver mm-hmm. for a few days, coming back tomorrow. So today I, I felt sort of like I didn't want to stay inside. I couldn't think of anything good to do. So I did my sort of Ikea run. So I went up to Ikea, half price books up there, um, had lunch at CPK, got the salad I like. Which one? I like and their pizza. So I had a lot of time in the car. I was listening to music and I was just thinking about stuff I might say about the Elgin marbles now and then. So I'm sorry. I sort of was loaded no, for bear. No, that's fine. Uh, I, but what salad did you get at CPK? It was it was not good. But the only salad I've always liked there is their original barbecue. Wait, I don't, can't remember what the which word. Original barbecue chicken chop salad. Got it. I really want to go to Ikea because they have so much candy. And I haven't rated any of it. Uh, they have tons of yeah, gummies and various Mainly have Marabou. Things. Mainly Marabou. Well, that's what their chocolate is, right? But they also yeah, have right. their full, their own line of gummies. Oh, that I don't know. Yeah. I, I just bought um, salmon. I, went, I only went there to buy smoked salmon. Actually? You drove yeah, all that I way to get smoked, smoked salmon. salmon from Ikea? Yeah, it's frozen. It's the only fr- smoked salmon I've ever gotten. It's frozen. Is it sockeye so or Atlantic? Atlantic. Okay. And it's delicious. We defrost it and it's great, I think. Nice. It's like $7.99 at nine, uh, $7.99 a package. All right. Hour and a half. Okay. Enough. Sounds good. I love, love you. Love you too. Bye, Deb. Be well. recorded this about 10 times because I'm just so bad at asking for help. But if you could like, subscribe, comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on, that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that I have an audience. So thank you for listening and 
Thank you for supporting me.